It's great to be here. Wendy and I don't make it quite this far north very often, or haven't, I should say, but it certainly is nice to be here. We appreciate the church for having us up. We love your pastor. We love your pastor's wife. We love your pastor's and your wife, his wife's children. And we've even loved some, loved some of you from camp, and uh, we, we certainly are glad to see you. Last time some of the kids saw me, my beard was like here. And I know there's been some disappointment, but I got called Santa Claus one too many times and uh, shaved it off just on a whim one day, and uh, Wendy was surprised herself, so it is what it is. I'll send you greetings from the church in Northport. I'm thankful that they give me the opportunity to come do things like this, and uh, it, it certainly puts a strain on a couple of other guys in the church, but I'm glad to have them ready to fill in when I'm not there. The church is in good hands. Open to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. I have not preached this sermon before, at least not exactly this way, and so I hope it doesn't flop. I was told early on in ministry, never preach anything for the first time somewhere else. Well, I'm breaking that rule, so we'll see how it goes today. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly. Not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. We'll stop there for the day. Well, The First Amendment to the United States Constitution says this. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances, close quote. Well, I'm from Alabama, I readily admit that, but I read that this way. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Those words are not difficult to understand. There are really no exceptions outlined in our Constitution. But as we've seen even this morning, COVID has changed everything. It's created a situation unlike anything we've really seen, at least in our lifetime, though it is not completely unprecedented. There have been viruses before that have closed churches. During the Spanish flu outbreak of 1918, churches closed for about a month, hoping that by loving their neighbor they could flatten the curve and keep people from getting infected and ultimately save lives. But during COVID-19, this 
this issue that we're going through right now, different states in the United States have been really all over the place, you know, relative to mandates and restrictions. In Alabama, for instance, churches were the last thing to close and the first thing to open. We have had it so good in Alabama, and I'm thankful. Churches have regularly in Alabama been exempted from state mandates, like even wearing masks. It's mandated in Alabama, wear a mask everywhere. They, the one exception is churches. They're, they're exempted from a number of things. Now, we, like you, have taken restrictions, and we've tried to be safe. We would have closed anyway because we love our neighbor and we want to do the right thing. It's not that we don't. Having talked to Jason as well as Jeff Short just a few hours south of you, I know Illinois. Do you all say Illinois? No S. It's just there for decoration. I know Illinois has been far more restrictive than Alabama has been. And I know there was some concern at least a few months ago that churches may not be allowed to open for a whole lot longer than you actually were closed. But I doubt any state has had it more difficult than California. California is still suffering under their state government at this point. Many of you, I'm sure, have followed the continuing battle between Grace Community Church, where John MacArthur pastors, and the state of California. California has essentially said churches are closed. We don't know when or if you will open. We will let you know you just stay home. There is no open date. Grace Community Church was quite cooperative for a long time, but that was just a step too far, and they have opened back up and have come under a whole lot of uh, backlash because of that. Now, I say all that to say, no matter what our opinion of COVID-19 may be, that's different for every person, and I certainly want to make sure that we respect the consciences of, of everyone relative to COVID-19, but there is no doubt that our government in our country has reached further than they have ever reached before in dealing with churches. And that's probably a precedent that is concerning. There is a growing antagonism against God's people in the United States outside of COVID-19. Now, I'm not a prophet. I don't claim to be a prophet. I'm not here telling you God gave me this message, so I'm preaching it to you. That's, that's not what I am. I just want to preach this text. But I'm trying to get us into the text. As the laws in our country continue to become more and more ungodly, and they are, I mean, abortion, gay marriage, among another many things that we could mention... As our laws become more and more ungodly, there will be more opposition to the truth of God's Word. That has happened in every country that has ever gone the direction that we are going. It's just a matter of time. In fact, if you told me 20 years ago we'd be where we are today, I would have thought you'd lost your mind. And yet here we are. Now what we may visualize as a possible outcome in our country, these saints here that Peter is writing to were living that. So it's a terrible situation. 
The birth of Christianity, not that Christianity began and is unconnected from the Old Testament, I don't mean that, but the the turn from the Old Covenant to the New when, when Jesus came took place during the time of the Pax Romana. Many of you have studied about that. That's about that 200 year time of peace in the Roman Empire from Caesar Augustus around 27 B.C., to the reign of Marcus Aurelius around 180. But not everything was peaceful during the Pax Romana. Most of us would recall in AD 70 when the Jews rebelled against Caesar, Rome squashed that rebellion with much force. It was a time of peace, but it was not optional peace. You were required to be peaceful. And if you ever found yourself on the wrong side of the emperor, you would be forcefully brought back into submission. And for the record, not every emperor from Caesar Augustus to Marcus Aurelius was a good guy. Some of them were real tools, to say the least. 1 Peter is actually written during the reign of one of the worst emperors ever to reign, Nero. Perhaps you've heard of him. His reign could be aptly described by the three words tyranny, extravagance, and debauchery. He was a wicked man. On July, or in July AD 64, the city of Rome burned just about completely. Temples, shrines, businesses, homes. Seventy percent of the city was destroyed, and at least half of the residents of Rome were left homeless and really rather hopeless. Most of the Roman citizens believed that Nero burned the city himself. You may have heard the tradition that Nero played the fiddle while Rome burned to the ground. Well, that's an unlikely tradition. The fiddle wasn't even invented at that point. But that gives you a pretty good idea of just how accepted that tradition is, though. The people did believe that he did it. He had this insatiable desire to build, and they they were covered with buildings, and the best thing for him to do with this desire to build was burn everything down so he could rebuild everything. Well, that's bad politics, even for an emperor, and he needed a scapegoat. His scapegoat was Christian's. Nero spread the word quickly that it was actually Christians who burned down the city of Rome and persecution immediately exploded throughout the Roman Empire. History tells us that persecution was intense as far north as the Taurus Mountains in places like Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Look at the first verse of this book. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, where we know that the persecution against Christians was was high. Peter's he's writing to these believers, encouraging them in this time of persecution, mostly, by the way, to Gentile believers. And he is instructing them on how to live through these times of 
persecution. He, he continually reminds these saints that they have promises far better than anything they would have in a free society. They have promises in Jesus Christ because of His death, burial, and resurrection in their place for their sins as their substitute. He begins that very early in this book. Look at chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved for you in heaven, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. You can just hear the encouragement from Peter's brain working through his pen as he is encouraging these saints that are in the midst of persecution. This idea works its way through all of chapter 1, part of chapter 2. And then he begins in chapter 2 to just look at verse 11, for instance. He turns it how they were to live among pagans. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. For note, the Gentiles who are persecuting you. Have your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, specifically in that you burn down the city of Rome, that they may, by your good works which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. He goes on in the latter part of chapter 2, tells them that they should... They should submit to the governmental authorities as a general rule. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't remind you that it is this same Peter who was confronted by the chief priests and told not to preach the gospel in Acts chapter 5, said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Look, we, we obey the government to a point. But there's a point when we cannot. When they require us to do something forbidden in the Bible or they restrict us from doing something required for us in the Bible, then we say no. But here, Peter tells them, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. He even goes on and tells them that they are to, they are to submit to the king and honor him. Look at verse 17. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. In chapter 3, Peter encourages these believers to live for the Lord and to understand that suffering for the cause of Christ is actually something to rejoice in. Something that we have a difficult time really comprehending. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. But if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. He goes on, by the way, to offer Jesus as the best example of that. In chapter 4, he continues that thought with a glance towards the future. All to these saints whose lives are literally on the line. Honestly, I don't know what the prosperity gospel people do with the book of 1 Peter. It just simply doesn't fit their model. Of course, I would go to say that neither does the rest of Scripture. 
That brings us up then to our text today. This is the context of this book. Peter writes specifically here to the elders of the churches in these various locations. These are churches that very possibly the Apostle Paul established. They had a very good foundation laid. And we know when the Apostle Paul went to an area, he ordained elders, plural by the way, in every church, singular. This is God's general model. We'd have a difficult time proving otherwise, I suppose, in the New Testament. So understand, contextually, Peter, during this reign of tyranny, during this this intense time of persecution, he expects the elders of these various churches that he is writing to to help God's people through this trial. They are to encourage these saints. They are to lead these saints. They are to shepherd these saints. They're to train these saints. This text gives us a very practical view of why God has set up elders in churches. Not that that's only something we might look at during a time of persecution. No, that's good for all time. But specifically, as we see things maybe on our horizon, we can can see what these saints were going through. I know that was a long introduction, far longer than anything I normally pump out. But nevertheless, I think it does help you to get into this text, especially as we look at the directional landscape of American culture before us. The title of my sermon today is Elders Leading Through Difficult Times. Elders Leading Through Difficult Times. And in this message, I want to just quickly look at Peter's instruction to these elders in these various churches. And this situation is unique to them, but it is good instruction nevertheless for all of God's people, all of the Lord's churches for all time. It is good for us today. Now before we jump into the text, let me do just a little bit of work for you here so we don't have to do this later. I want to point out three different terms that are key throughout this passage. The first one is the second word of our text, elders. It is the Greek word presbyteros. You've probably heard something similar to that. Obviously, Presbyterian churches borrowed that Greek word in, in naming their churches. And, and there are some similarities between a, a Baptist church and leadership in a Presbyterian church, but the difference is pretty substantial. In Presbyterian churches, they would hold the view, and I'm not talking about them behind their back. You can go read this on the internet. They put this out there. They believe that elders rule the church with no congregational involvement whatsoever. We do not believe that. We are Baptists. Baptists believe in congregational authority. Elders just lead. We lead. But the congregation ultimately is the one that retains authority. That's far different from what is going on in the Presbyterian model. So they borrowed the word, but I don't believe they're accurately applying the Scripture. We'll see that as we move through this text, by the way. The second second word I want you to notice is the first word of verse 2. It is the word feed. That is the Greek word poiomano. Now, 
This word is used 11 times in the King James Bible. It's rendered feed, rule, and one time even feed cattle. Obviously something unrelated to what we're talking about here. But there is a related noun, poyomen, that is translated once, pastor, in Ephesians 4.11, and 17 times as shepherd. What Peter is really saying here, we'll get there in just a moment, is shepherd the flock of God. That's the, that's the underlying idea behind that particular Greek word. You get the idea. The third word is uh, later on in the same verse, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight. That is the Greek word episkopeo, another word that you probably are familiar with. It's the word that the Episcopals borrowed from this word and made their name. They are a long way from this particular text, but nevertheless, that's where they got the word. In a sense, these men in our text are given oversight. They are overseers of these churches. So, elders, shepherds, pastors, overseers, bishops, all the same office. Just different duties of that particular office. We could refer to church leaders by any of those names and they all mean essentially the same thing. They're just talking about duties. So let's get into this text. Peter begins here by saying, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. So Peter, after instructing these children of God as to how they are to live in the midst of persecution, turns his focus from the congregation to the leaders of these various churches. Now the underlying language does not have a break. When Peter picked up his pen at the end of chapter 4, he didn't write chapter 5 as if he's beginning a new thought. This is connected to everything that he's already talked about. And notice, Peter actually includes himself as an elder. The elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder. Now, yes, Peter was an apostle. Yes, Peter might have had what we would term apostolic authority. Yes, Peter was uniquely called He had a unique learning. He was uniquely gifted. He was inspired by the Lord, obviously, to pen part of the New Testament. Peter was one of 12 men, or 13, when we would include Paul, and some of those that were closely knit in with them, like Luke or Mark. These are very unique men. But as far as daily function in the church at Jerusalem, Peter was an elder, much like James or Timothy in Ephesus, or Titus in Crete. And much like those that he is writing to here, obviously. As an apostle, he would have been a de facto elder in the church at Jerusalem. But that particular group of elders extended beyond the apostles. There were other men who were elders at Jerusalem other than just the apostles. And then he mentions here 
that he is a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, I think that's probably a glance at his apostleship. But then he immediately returns to what we might wrongly term a general blessing. It's not... There's nothing general about this. We're going to be a partaker of the glory of Christ which shall be revealed. I don't want to bring that down. That is huge. But every believer will experience that. Not just apostles, not just church leaders, but all believers will be partakers of the glory of Christ. So Peter is anything but elevating himself in this passage. He's just a servant doing what the Lord has called him to do. Then he addresses their work and he says, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof not by constraint but willingly, not for filthy lucre but of a ready mind. There's much in this particular verse. Now there are a lot of similarities between sheep and people. It's not by accident that the Lord regularly refers to Christians as sheep. I know you've probably heard some of those things brought out. Sheep are helpless without leadership. They need leadership. It is God's ordained way, but He uses the picture of a shepherd and a flock to prove that, and I actually think that's an important key to understanding why God so regularly uses this particular metaphor. You know, as long as sheep are kept on a farm where they're born and raised, they can function okay. But if you remove a sheep from his regular pasture land by two miles, he will never find his way home. They just do not have that instinct. Now a dog, the dumbest of dogs, can find their way back home eventually. But sheep just do not have that ability. They need someone to lead them back where they come. Another problem with sheep is they follow blindly without any real idea of where they're going sometimes. On sheep farms, some of you may know this, they actually have this thing called a Judas sheep. And the Judas sheep leads all of the other sheep to the slaughterhouse. He's led away. He gets out. They but they kill all of the other sheep. That's one of the reasons that I'm certain that your pastor is regularly telling you that we don't want to wander off like sheep. We want to be biblical and be in God's Word so that we know where we're going and what we need to do. Humans naturally follow logic and a good story no matter how biblical it is. We're just built that way. So it is greatly important that a pastor or taking this particular metaphor, a shepherd, it is greatly important that a a church shepherd actually preaches God's Word rather than just talking about it. And there is a vast difference between those things. Sheep cannot find water. They do not have a sense of smell which will lead them to water. A lot of animals do. They do not. If they wander for a watering hole just a short distance, they will never find their way back to water. Sheep will devour the grass on the range where they live and they will continue eating roots and dirt and everything else if somebody doesn't lead them somewhere else to eat the food. They'll eat toxic weeds. It doesn't matter. They just don't have the ability to think on that level. 
Maybe that's why in Matthew 9, Jesus said when He saw the multitudes that He was moved with compassion because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. They needed guidance like a sheep, but they didn't have any spiritual guidance, at least not any good leadership when Jesus was ministering. And for the record, sheep are dirty. I know we don't, we don't see that because we, you know, we see little stuffed sheep or you watch the Serta commercial and you see sheep jumping across the sky and they're just nice and white. But that's not a true picture of sheep. Sheep produce a high amount of lanolin and they walk around with sticks stuck to them, dirt all over them, grass, and somebody's got to clean that. That's the job of the shepherd. I say all that to say God did not accidentally give us the picture of an animal like a sheep. This is done with purpose. Now, I I don't think that the Lord is looking out at Beverly Manor Baptist Church and saying, you're all unable to do anything, you're all dirty, You're, 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 you're dumb. I don't think He's saying that. But we do, as humans, have tendencies that are similar to a sheep. And without leadership, a flock... A church, if you will, will wander away from the truth and ultimately come malnourished, just like a flock of sheep. The mechanism through which God has chosen to nourish a flock, a church, is through leadership, through elders. And these elders are to feed the sheep and to provide for the sheep first and foremost through the accurate preaching of the Word of God. Without that, we're doomed. And notice as well, it begins by saying that they are to feed the flock of God which is among you. You see, this is where our Presbyterian brothers and sisters miss the mark. There is not so much as a hint in the New Testament of a group that presided oversight over anything other than a local church. There's no such thing biblically of a group of men who preside over a group of churches. Let me be clear. I'm referring to any formal setup or any informal setup. In other words, a pastor of another church has stepped completely outside his jurisdiction if he comes in here and tries to begin running things here. That is not God's model. Those things happen, but those things are wrong and really miss the understanding of the autonomy of the local church. Sheep, as I said earlier, are are dirty animals, but if a man is to shepherd sheep, he's going to have to be willing to get in there with the sheep and get dirty. It's tough work. I, I know... Jason makes it look like a dream job, right? It's hard being a pastor. It's not easy. My wife could certainly tell you that. I'm certain that that other pastors' wives could tell you that. And I know the children of pastors could tell you of the many, many times that they had plans as a family and something ministerial comes up and they have to cancel. Because nothing is 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. Shepherding a flock is not always... Convenient, just like it's not convenient with a shepherd shepherding sheep. And it says here that these these elders 
are to take oversight of the flock. The, the underlying idea here is just that they are to manage the people. They're obviously to love the people, but they are to manage the people. As church leaders, we are to help guide a church, here termed a flock of God. A second ago, I said that this begins with the right preaching of Scripture. A man cannot guide a church apart from the Bible. We all know 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. In other words, if a pastor, an elder, is going to lead a church and thoroughly mature the membership, it must come through the preaching of God's Word. That's why the very next section, Paul told Timothy and the rest of the elders at Ephesus for that matter, preach the Word. Preach the Word. Listen, if you find a church where leadership is out of order, you will find a church that is out of order. And if you find a church where the Bible is not being preached accurately, you will find a church that is on its way to apostasy. There is no other option. If 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 is correct, I assume we all agree that it is, and it tells us that it is through the Word of God that, that Christians are perfect, perfected, and furnished unto all good works, then when that's not happening, a group of people can only go in a bad direction. They may become legalists, they may become liberal, but if a church abandons the Bible, it's going one of those two directions. These shepherds are to give oversight to the sheep But it does not mean that all authority have been given to the elders. That is not what's going on here. Baptists are, I would say, biblical in this view. We are congregationalists. Again, that's what makes us so different from our approach to church leadership from Presbyterians. But as long as elders are leading biblically, the church should follow. Hebrews 13 Obey them that have rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they must give an account, that they do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable to you. Look, when when elders lead in an unbiblical direction, somebody somewhere ought to stand up and say, I think we ought to vote this guy out. And somebody ought to say, Amen, brother, I second it. The church remains the authoritative one to vote out a pastor that is leading in the wrong direction. But as long as the eldership is biblical, or perhaps I could say as long as they're not unbiblical, follow them. It's for your good. Now, elders who volunteer for service should be several things, and it's outlined here in this text. Notice... First of all, he says, not by constraint, but willingly. You might recall that in the qualifications for an elder in 1 Timothy chapter 3, it begins by speaking of a man who desires the office of a bishop. You cannot force people into church leadership. It it, It has been done. 
but it generally does not work very well. Elders should desire to be in that position, but elders should be finding other men who are gifted and helping to mature them so they can become church leaders. That's actually something that your pastor is required to do according to Scripture. Paul writes to Timothy in Ephesus in a place that we know, by the way, they had many elders there. And he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. That is the goal of the Apostle Paul in recruiting Timothy, that he would commit uh, those things that Timothy had learned to other men, and then they would recruit other men. He's looking long term down the road. That the churches are prepared for generations to come because they have good, solid leadership. But even the most gifted man, again, cannot be forced into leading. These men in this text that were hoping to be elders, it wasn't to be anything, or it wasn't anything to be done for the money. It says, not for filthy lucre, not for greed. Now, I've yet to find a man in a church that we would consider a sister church that has gotten rich doing the work of a pastor or elder. I'm doing something wrong myself if that's how that should work. But if that possibility exists where there is an opportunity to take this job and get rich doing it, the man shouldn't take it. That's not what the job of an elder is for. The goal of every elder should be the glory of God and the edification of God's children. Nothing more. Now it's rather easy in this day of TBN to find examples of men like Joel Osteen that are peddling the Word of God. I'm assuming that's not a book y'all are giving away your best life now. He's just peddling God's Word. That's, that's not the goal of elders. And even in the qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3, there are safeguards against that. And you know, the qualifications really are that which a church should look at and say, we believe this man is or is not qualified. He is or is not gifted. And you rarely ever hear any church say, you know, I'm sorry, but we just don't think you're ready or we don't think you've got the gift. But you know what? If that happens... A church should, they're doing good for themselves and for the, for the man if they say no. The safeguard for, against greed is that he should not be a novice, lest he be lifted up with pride. They should be of a ready mind. So, not by constraint, but willingly, but of a ready mind. In other words, those going into the eldership should serve eagerly, or they should be eager to serve. Now, it doesn't mean that they may not be nervous. Look, I'm nervous a lot of times when I'm preaching, when we're making decisions as a, as a flock. Uh, if anything will make a pastor nervous, it's calling to order a business meeting. I mean, you know, it doesn't mean that nobody's ever going to be nervous. Look, I'd be concerned about a leader who didn't sometimes wonder if he's doing the right thing. You know, not every decision that a pastor makes is he always 100% concrete about. 
Despite what I think a lot of folks think, not everything is spelled out perfectly in Scripture, black and white. And sometimes we have to make a prayerful, educated decision. But a man should seek to serve the Lord's church as an elder so that the members can better serve the Lord. That should be his goal in getting into eldership. He goes on here in verse 3. He says, "...neither as being lords over God's heritage, but in samples or examples to the flock." You know, an elder is disallowed from domineering the church that he is pastoring. The idea here is that an elder isn't supposed to assert his will over the church in an arrogant way. Again, we believe in congregationalism. But I would go so far as to say that elders aren't allowed by this text to be arrogant and cocky. Jesus wasn't. He was a loving leader that gave up everything for His children. Philippians chapter 2 spells that out very clearly. Men who rule their churches like an absolute monarch, and there are some, need to read this passage and study this passage and go back and study this again. And men who are appointed to the office of an elder should be an example to God's people. Their life, their zeal, their commitment, their study, their relationships... Everything should be an example to the flock. That's why we have the qualifications. The qualifications are maintaining and assuring that a church, at least hopefully, is ordaining a man who is going to be an example for them so they can better serve the Lord. Listen, an elder should model for a church what commitment to Jesus looks like. The way he treats his wife should be a model for the church. The way he treats his children, the way he interacts with those in the church, if he has a job, the way that he deals with his boss, all of those things should be an example to the church. And he should be a man, he must be a man, who lives his life around the church and not one who schedules church around his life. A pastor who isn't faithful cannot expect more of the sheep than he is willing to give himself. A church simply will never rise above its leadership. Then he says, When the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. But there is a special reward for a man who serves in one of the Lord's churches in the role of an elder. Now listen, churches should reward men who faithfully serve them and truly thank the Lord for that man or those men. I mean, Paul, again, in writing to Timothy, says, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. He goes on to say, For the Scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of the reward. That's even talking about in pay. You know, elders should be encouraged by the church and known 
you know, personally by the church that they are doing a good job and they, you are thankful for them. But the ultimate reward for an elder is not money and good sermon, brother. The ultimate reward for an elder is one that lasts throughout eternity. That's why Paul wrote to the church in Corinth saying, but with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of any man's judgment. Yea, I judge not my own self. For I know nothing by myself, yet I am not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. Ultimately, elders who lead well will receive a special reward from the Lord Himself at the judgment seat of Christ, and that is laying up treasure in heaven. So these churches that Peter is writing to, in these various cities mentioned in the first verse, they were coming under heavy, heavy persecution, something we've never seen in our lifetime. We may be headed that way. I don't know. But we've never seen anything like this. And in their case, it was going to get a whole lot worse before it got better. In fact, the very man that wrote this letter, the Apostle Peter, just a few years after he penned this letter, had to watch his wife be crucified just before he himself was crucified. Now that's based on church tradition, but it's pretty reliable. Peter literally lived out the very things that he is telling these people to do. Be faithful through persecution. And this letter, by the way, goes on to encourage these people in the promise of God. Look after our text. Look down at verse 10 of chapter 5. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This Peter is just encouraging them that, hey, even in this trial of persecution, God is sovereign. This group, these elders that were to lead these people through these trying times, these, these shepherds, these pastors, overseers, they were to take care of the flock of God, especially during the times that they were going through here. Listen, a church without a pastor is a church without order. I see too many churches these days that are without pastors for decades. That is not God's model. And it usually does not end well. It's much the same thing as if you put sheep, helpless sheep like we talked about, out into a field and just walk away thinking that ten years later you could come back and they're all healthy. They will not be. They will not be there. Now listen, I know there's sometimes a period of time between calling a pastor if a pastor leaves or if a pastor passes away. But churches should work hard at making sure they have biblical leadership locally so that during that time they still have somebody leading them. Look, when the Apostle Paul passed away, the church at Antioch did not fall apart. When Timothy passed away, the church at Ephesus did not fall apart. These churches, 
They were prepared for the future, no matter if some of these men were put in prison. If you did have leadership much like these churches here, it's far more likely that if things get bad in America and Jason is thrown in prison, that somebody else can step up and continue to lead the church. That's what Peter's looking at here. Some of these men, because pastors are the face of the congregation, some of these men were going to be put to death. But Peter's goal was that there were other men ready and able to lead these churches through these times when things got really bad. Listen, I don't know the direction that we may be going for our country. I, again, am not a prophet and do not claim to be. But on the horizon, it doesn't look nearly as well as I would like for it to. Those of us that are older know that. And if God, through Peter's pen, thought that church leaders were important enough through a time of persecution to take this short passage and speak to, then a church ought to be very serious about leadership. Leadership is going to drive the direction of a church. But this this passage is very relevant to us. But so is all Scripture. And none of it should be avoided. I hope that's beneficial to you. I at least enjoyed the study of that passage. And it, it encouraged me as a church leader. Brother.